that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. On the show today, we look at the question of whether Vancouver is intending to be green for all or green for some. A full-hour documentary produced by Peter Driftmeer looks at the city's intention to tear down the downtown viaducts through the twin lenses of gentrification and environmental sustainability. You're tuned into the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. Vancouver's City Council, under the direction of the ruling Vision Vancouver Party, wants to remove two remnants of the never-fully-realized inner-city highway system in the downtown core. But in the process, two long-standing community gardens are threatened with demolition. In this documentary, Green for All or Green for Some, Peter Driftmere explores the debate around the removal of the viaduct through the twin lenses of gentrification and environmental sustainability. And as of April 2013, city staff have yet to come back to council with the final recommendations on the removal of the viaducts. In recent months, the Strathcona Residents Association has expressed serious concerns about the possibility of increased traffic volume on Prior Street, and community groups in the downtown east side have too expressed similar concerns regarding increased traffic along Hastings. The Vancouver Courier reported in an April 11, 2013 article that the staff report on the viaduct's future is expected to council by June 2013. And this documentary, uh, originally uh, produced for Red Eye Radio on Vancouver's co-op radio 100.5 FM, uh, which airs live uh, from 9 to 12 on Saturdays, um, originally aired uh, in fall 2012. And Peter Driftmere is a producer with the Red Eye Collective, and uh, we're so very thrilled and pleased um, to be able to bring you this uh, one-hour documentary uh, so stay with us. This is, again, The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. Thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, this is uh, Peter Driftmere's documentary, uh, Green for Some or Green for Some, Green for All or Green for Some. Stay with us. Is Vancouver's greenest city strategy green for all or green for some? The city's viaduct system into downtown on Georgia and Dunsmuir streets is slated for removal. 
This hour, we'll take a closer look at the viaduct removal through the two lenses of gentrification and environmental sustainability within the broader downtown Eastside area. These viaducts were originally constructed during the 1970s as part of a larger highway network that was never fully realized. While the original construction of the viaducts displaced the historic black community of Hogan's Alley, the bulk of the highway was never realized. Displacement is a central component of market-led gentrification as much as it is in government-led development such as that of the leveling of Hogan's Alley. Yet the removal of the viaducts are central to the city of Vancouver's planning and branding strategy to become the greenest city of by 2020. In place of the viaducts, there would be housing, green space, and purportedly less car traffic. Later this hour, we'll hear voices from the historic Cottonwood Community Garden. Cottonwood could be threatened with losing the majority of its land base, depending on how the city goes about rerouting traffic away from the traffic flow now. After that, we'll hear from geographer Noah Questel about his research on the political ecologies of gentrification to assess the shift toward sustainable urban development alongside gentrification. Before all that... The original attempt to construct a highway system through the Vancouver neighborhood of Strathcona was coupled with a government strategy of urban renewal. It would have displaced hundreds of neighborhood homeowners and renters and rendered them tenants of public housing. The residents fought back and won the cessation of highway construction, except over the viaducts. Nick Blumley is a geographer at Simon Fraser University, Red Eye recorded the following talk in 2008. Here, he compares that struggle against displacement in the 60s and 70s with that of the current one against gentrification in the downtown east side. I'd just like to, 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 uh, to just impose upon you just for, for hopefully for just a few minutes, um, and I want to pick up on, uh, on the question of frontier. The frontier, of course, in places like what was Coast Salish Territory and now is British Columbia, entailed, of course, some very violent processes of dispossession. It entailed the making and the remaking and the elimination of a whole series of property relations. And that's what I want to think about when I think about processes of gentrification. Uh, when we talk about gentrification, uh, in part we're talking about a process by which urban property relations are made and remade. In other words, when we talk about gentrification, we're not just talking about real estate. We're also talking about real property. We're talking about property in land uh, and all the dynamics that go with it. So gentrification uh, and broader processes of um, urban redevelopment frequently entail, for example, the erosion or the elimination of state property. So massive council house sell-off in the UK, uh, for example. The uh, squeezing and the elimination uh, of uh, social housing uh, subsidies in, uh, in Canada. It also can entail the reworking of the rental property market. The elimination of the process of expulsion from SROs, of course, uh, entails uh, an expulsion of tenants and perhaps ultimately their replacement uh, by property owners, full-scale property owners. The process of gentrification also can entail the elevation and the hardening of private property. The discussion, for example, about the ambassadors, I think, is an example of that, where the um, imperatives of private property become increasingly uh, prevalent. 
I've also tried to make the argument in the context of the downtown east side that the process of gentrification in one sense constitutes a process of enclosure, an enclosure of a commons, a commons that has been produced and co-produced through many generations of community struggle and, uh, and uh, activity. When we talk about property, however, we shift the terrain in some very important and, to my mind, problematic ways. There's a very dangerous tendency to regard property in the sense that I've talked about it, the sense of property rights and ownership and so on, as something that is, in a sense, off-limits. We're not really allowed to talk about uh, property. It's beyond our purview. It's beyond our control to the extent that it appears rooted in what we might call the private domain as opposed to the public domain. And this can affect our political and our ethical stance in some important and problematic ways. Consequently, processes of gentrification, which are driven by largely, or which appear to be driven largely by the private sector, albeit with state involvement in very important ways, can consequently easily appear to be a somewhat apolitical process from the outside, something uh, over which we have no direct control. If state action is implicated, of course, it becomes easier to mobilize. It becomes easier uh, to uh, invoke rights. Uh, rights are a very powerful tool, but as my colleagues here will, I'm sure, point out, rights are frequently invoked in relation to state action, not private action. So the courts will tell you, uh, hopefully they'll change their view, that the Charter is basically uh, a document that protects you against the state. It doesn't protect you against non-state actors. And of course, that isn't to say that we don't rework that and push on that point, but the generalized tendency uh, seems to, uh, to uh, be a bracketing off of certain domains of uh, public versus private action. And this all sounds a bit abstract, but I was reminded of this uh, the other day when I led a, a field trip, um, as I'm sometimes uh, asked to do, in uh, Strathcona and Chinatown. Now, Strathcona is a very, very interesting place in the kind of collective imaginary uh, around Vancouver and urban change. And as many of you may know, in the late 1960s, Strathcona was the target of a remarkable uh, project of mass expulsion. It was, however, a state-driven project of mass expulsion, a process which would have entailed the expropriation of a vast swath of private property and the remaking of property relations where a large population of, uh, of owners would have been turned into renters, state renters, and would have been allocated state, rent, state housing. Strathcona, like the downtown east side, was targeted and demonized. It was dysfunctional, it was uh, marginal, it was decayed, and it was an urgent need of intervention and uh, surgery. In this case, of course, the process was, that, or was to be that of urban renewal, which I'm rather alarmed to see has now come back up in the gentrification uh, context. And, of course, the story in Strathcona is a heartening story because it prompted a mass uprising, remarkable mobilization uh, uh, with groups like Spota and uh, groups in Chinatown and elsewhere uh, forming really very creative alliances, jumping scale, connecting with the federal government and using a language uh, very much of, of, uh, of rights and justice, uh, the argument being that urban renewal was inherently discriminatory because it was targeting a population that was 70% uh, a Chinese Canadian, and it was also inherently destructive to the extent that a viable community, uh, which had been starved of resources, uh, um, was going to be destroyed in a very, a very misguided uh, process. And of course, Spota and other groups won. Now that saving of Strathcona 
saving now perhaps for another round of gentrification, but that's by the by, is, is now part of that sort of self-congratulatory story that we tell ourselves about Vancouver, right? What a marvelous place Vancouver is because we, in fact we didn't, but some of us did, we saved Strathcona. It's one of the nine great decisions that Mike Harcourt et al. have in their uh, wonderful book called City Making in Paradise, along with other sorts of uh, rather interesting initiatives. Think now about the downtown east side. And think now about the remarkable similarities to the Strathcona experience and the remarkable dissimilarities to the Strathcona experience. The problem being that it becomes, I think, somewhat harder to generate that same language of wrongdoing, of an abrogation of rights, of targeted discrimination in relation to a market-driven process of expansion, of expropriation and, uh, and expulsion, uh, as in the case of the downtown east side. At least in Strathcona, the residents could stay. The downtown east side, the residents don't get to stay unless they're lucky enough to get um, a, a room in uh, uh, social housing or co-op uh, housing. So a language of market-driven change, I think, uh, in the downtown east side makes it all the much harder for us to respond and to invoke a language of rights, to invoke a language of justice. Think what would happen, for example, if the city of Vancouver decided to um, expropriate the hotels, as I've often wondered why they don't, because in fact we paid for them many, many times over through welfare payments. Uh, think what would happen if the city, of, we can imagine the Fraser Institute, uh, having some concern about that. Think what would happen, conversely, if the city of Vancouver uh, uh, decided to expel all the residents from the SROs. I think, again, there would be a justifiable uh, wave of anger, an invocation of rights, uh, and, uh, and all that goes with it. But when the private sector does it, it becomes much harder to use that language. And that, to me, is a very important thing to bear in mind. I'd like to imagine another Mike Harcourt-like book written in, say, 2015, which celebrates the successful defense of the downtown east side from expulsion. To do so, I think, and it's possible, to do so, I think, we need in part to redefine how we think about urban change and the categories that we all too often uncritically use to bracket off certain areas or certain phenomena as political or as non-political. Thanks very much. That was SFU geography professor Nick Blumley. You're listening to Green for All or Green for Some, a focused look at gentrification and the removal of Vancouver's viaducts. The removal of Vancouver's viaduct system is a component of the city's greenest city strategy and brand. Another component of that strategy is the expansion of community gardens in the city. Cottonwood and Strathcona Gardens are among the oldest and largest community gardens in the city. Both gardens lie alongside streets that have been threatened with expansion once the viaducts come down. Beth McLaren and Len Kidd have been gardeners at Cottonwood for the past 18 years and have served past terms on its board. I met with them at Cottonwood, where I also garden. As we speak, you can hear the rumble of semi-trucks being drowned out by the diversity of bird species in the garden. Um, it's widely known, uh, at least amongst us at the community garden, that Gregor Robertson uh, enjoys taking his lunches here. Uh, why are people attracted to Cottonwood Garden? It's a lovely space. Um, uh, 
can pick uh, four or five habitats to sit in. They're different. Um, the uh, street noise is quieted. Uh, you're surrounded by uh, these uh, huge trees. And uh, everywhere you turn, there's something to look at. Good enough. Yeah. Well, why, why, why do you think people are attracted to that? What's, what's special about the garden compared to other? Because there's so many community gardens in the city. Well, I think a lot of it is the shape. It's long and narrow, and you kind of discover it as you walk through it, and it kind of unfolds, and it's like being in another world. And I've seen people come through, like um, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a young couple from Spain, and they knew about Cottonwood Garden, but they just had this wild-eyed excitement. And when he talked about it, he said um, they had spent a few days looking at the sites, but this was the best thing they saw. Wow. And it was, it's, I often see it, it's that just look of wonder when people discover it for the first time. Because yeah. it's much more than just a community garden. There's, it, there's a whole host of different species we have here. What, what's going on here in terms of just un, other than people's individual plots? Well, when it started, this was a pretty sh uh, shabby neighborhood, and we had all this space and uh, not that many gardeners to um, to want individual plots. So we had to, we developed on a communal model, and uh, you know developed around two teams: the Asian garden and the native garden. And so we've got all this space for for 20 year old chestnut trees and kiwi arbor and, and mulberry trees and and um, you know uh, it's it's a unique a unique space in the city because everything else is so tight all the, the new community gardens are so small and so controlled they all have a similar look because the space is so confined and here we had it seemed at one point in time we had all this space. Now it's full. Um, I also understand that researchers have visited Cottonwood. What, did, uh, what successes of the garden are they looking at? We have. Uh, uh, we seem to be a, a place to go for uh, UBC and some Fraser students. Uh, they come here to study. Um, you know, what our community garden produces, uh, how uh, community garden benefits the, uh, the seniors and uh, elderly. Uh, we have uh, people coming in to look at uh, insects. We have people coming in to measure the rate of growth of our trees. We have had uh, soil scientists coming in and measuring um, what pre-existed and, and the, the uh, quality of the soil that we produced in 20 years. Um, it it seems that every year there's there's a new area that they want to study down here. It seems every year we have uh, two or three uh, groups of students or um, coming coming through from Simon Fraser UBC, and they're you know maybe they're leaving um, boxes on the trees, they're testing something or taking samples or yeah. So, and quite often uh, the gardeners will be asked to participate or, or not. Yeah, it's quite frequent. And then there's um, groups that come through uh, um, from, from different areas just to show them the, the garden. Oliver Kelhammer often brings groups through the, um, yeah, Kaya College or 
or, or different areas that are concerned with uh, permaculture or different uh, specific kind of gardening. So Cottonwood seems to fit a, a number of uh, role through a number of roles, models. Yeah. And um, Len had mentioned that uh, people measure the changing soil quality. I understand that. Um, the, well, I was going to ask you how the how the garden came to be, and I understand that um, it used to be a, a waste dump. Yeah. Uh, uh, apparently, at, at, in the twenties, uh, in the thirties, this was uh, a dumping site for the various industries that. that uh, uh, we're in the area, and uh, it's always been an illegal dumping site for, for years and years and years. When I dug over my plot, um, I was the first one in. It was a, a raw ground, uh, my first plot in the garden. And I was finding uh, bottles from 1917, 1912, you know. Um, digging them up, I dug down, oh, I don't know, uh, two or three spadeful at uh, depth, you know, and uh, that's what was there, um, as long with old bed springs and tin cans and uh, rusted metal. Um, uh, the other thing that used to happen was the, the, the track was a go-kart track at one time, and uh, uh, along the edge they used it as uh, the pits for the, for the go-karts, so there was... Uh, uh, lead contamination down there uh, from batteries and oil and gas, I guess, mm -hmm. and uh, copper and stuff. So we've we've had various testing done in the garden and uh, found toxic metals uh, early in the garden uh, that we have uh, remediated, I guess. One thing you, d you don't uh, realize when you look at the garden now is it was completely bare. It was wasteland, and there were no big trees like there are now. It was just uh, just empty, apart from you know blackberries that grew up. So what has developed now is just really amazing over uh, 21 years. Yeah. How did the garden first start? Oh, it would have been um, Oliver Kelhammer and a group, and basically as as rural gardeners, just. Um, just sort of owning the space, and I think it was at the time when the, uh, they wanted to develop a freeway through here. Mm -hmm. But um, they had some support from Parks Court and the city, and slowly it, it developed into um, the garden. And he planted, he and, and the small group did um, a lot of the structure, um, developed the Asian garden and the idea that there'd be a third plot, the third. Um, bird habitat or native garden and a third Asian garden. So they kind of set that framework and structure and we've tried to keep it keep it going that way. And so so now that um, the garden is 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 beautiful, it's ginormous, the trees are really tall, the city um, where the garden is under threat, why has the city looked at the proposal to expand Malkin as useful? Well um Malkin was the the, the uh, downtown ex, uh, expressway right away, and basically the city owns the, the right away, um, so it's convenient. Um, they don't have to spend any money acquiring land. Uh, um, when the viaducts come down, they promise to calm traffic, calm Prior Street, which is one of the uh, streets that take the traffic uh, from the viaducts. 
and if they do that they want to send it down Malcolm. Now our problem here is that uh, maybe 60% of our garden lies on the right-of-way. If they take the right-of-way back they'll take it off and uh, devastate what's here. What and what stage is the decision currently at? Have they already? Is it already a done deal that the viaducts are coming down? Um, the city uh, the city has um, uh, conducted a survey on the viaducts, and the public is in favor of taking the viaducts down. They still have to find the money to do it. Uh, they have to um, get. Uh, financing scheme in order and get it approved uh, but it looks to me like the viaducts will come down. Um, it hasn't passed through city council it hasn't had final, final approval but the, the concept they do have a concept and uh, a plan for taking about removing the viaducts. So part of that plan is just deciding what to do with that extra traffic and so far not really. Is on the table. N not really. That was, um, I guess, in the July 24th meeting, they were kind of joined. But what we heard is that it'll go back to two proposals, and we're not sure if this is going to happen. But how it was originally set out was it was going to be um, the viaduct removal, and then after that they discussed the Eastern Core strategy, and that's where the Malkin connector would come in as part of that Eastern Core. So we're, we're not quite sure where that is, that's at. If, if the worst case scenario happens, um, what will that mean for you both personally? Yeah, I love this place. I love coming here and I think it'll be a big loss for the, the city as well and for the community and the neighborhood. I think it, it really serves the community well. It is part of the park and I really think it needs to stay intact. Uh, I work on a, a number of the common areas of the garden and really enjoy it and really like seeing it develop and grow and just keep getting ideas for how to make it better and, and more beautiful. Well, uh, I've been a member for 18 or 19 years and uh, a lot of those years I've worked on the common areas. I've worked on uh, different uh, areas in the garden. I've planted it and propagated a lot of stuff in the garden. Um, uh, personally, it will be devastating for me. Um, I don't know if I could bring myself to come back to the remnants. Um, but um, I, more than that, I think it would be uh, devastating for the neighborhood. Uh, this is a big success on the, on the downtown east side. And uh, it should be acknowledged that it is. Why do you think the city is willing to consider this and willing to have Cottonwood on the chopping block? Well, um, I think it's a matter of money. Um, you know, they, they own the right away, it's cheap. Um, uh, property values on, in Strathcona and uh, around the uh, uh, False Creek will uh, increase if the buttocks come down. Uh, so it's a win-win for everybody except uh, us and the poor people in Strathcona. Uh, I agree with that. I mean, there's not any houses along here. They have to deal with the, the businesses across Malcolm, but most of the access is through the garden, and, and uh, 
there's no property owners here. We, we just we just done a lease, so uh, the lease can't be broken. And we always knew that we're on sort of borrowed land. But I think what we've created here, especially since they're creating, wanting to create so many community gardens in the city, we've we've already got one that's established and isn't needing any more money or startup money. We're self-sufficient. We have this um, beautiful space that we're very grateful for being able to garden in. But we've also created, I think, a very beautiful space. So, but I think, like Landon, that comes down to to money, to development, and. Uh, what the city can get out of it. What could the city do to protect Cottonwood and the other, or any community garden um, going into the future? <clears throat> well, I think community gardens need some tenure. Um, we have we we don't actually have a lease; we have a license to garden. It's about akin to a ball league having a right to use a ball field. So, uh, and none of the community gardens in the city has uh, tenure uh, of any consequence. The ones on private land, of course, have no tenure. So, what can the city do? Um, the city could make an example of Cottonwood and say that this place is important, the volunteer effort that's gone into it is important, the biodiversity important, the insect and bird habitat is important, and we should find another way to move traffic through our city other than destroying these places. What would you ask people to do uh, if they wanted to support the Cottonwood Gardeners? Do you want to do that? Yeah, well, they can uh, contact me, um, Beth, at phone number 604. Two five three seven zero three six. We have a, a Facebook page called Save Cottonwood Community Garden. So please uh, go there and like us. We also have a website, cottonwoodgarden.com. So we will keep it up to date and uh, let you know um, any new information coming. We would also like you to write letters saying um, how much you would like. Uh, to keep Cottonwood Garden, if you feel as we do. And you can send uh, your letters to the mayor and the council at mayor and council at vancouver.ca. Thank you both. Um, oh, can we just add that sure. uh, we're trying to establish an online petition which yes. will be hosted at the various uh, websites. Please look for it and sign it when you see it. Sure. Just to mention that it's actually both gardens, it's Strathcona and Cottonwood, and what I would like to see, and I know it's been brought up before, is that um, the city designate and protect both these large gardens. We know they're on uh, large pieces of land, which is probably what makes them so attractive, you know, to, uh, they're worth a lot of money. But to make examples of these, as Lynn said, and designate them as uh, special places mm -hmm. and promote them. I mean, they are promoted on the, the city websites as lovely places to stroll through. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so you know, let's, let's keep doing that and promote them a bit more and, and uh, protect them. That was me speaking with Cottonwood Gardeners Len Kidd and Beth McLaren. Before I left Cottonwood Garden, I stopped to water my own plot where I bumped into another gardener. Mariah Morell has been at the garden for the past three years, and like many other gardeners, she appeared very worried about the possibility of losing cottonwood. 
And what do you got growing here? You're here watering today. What do you have growing? Oh, uh, everything. Zucchini, a little bit of corn. I've got tomatoes, beans, um, a lot of herbs, potatoes, uh, onions, garlic. So sort of a variety of uh, vegetables. Um, how big of a dent does that make in your in your average summertime uh, vegetable consumption? Yeah, it's actually it makes a huge dent because I I don't frequent I don't go to any of the vegetable stores or the, in my neighborhood when I when I've got the vegetables that I can live off in the summertime from my garden. So, um, uh, you know, it's it, because I'm. Uh, you know, I'm an apartment dweller on the east end, and I don't have any space to to do any of this stuff. This is like a blessing for me. So, were you community gardening before that? Before you came here? No, I um I was living out um in uh, the Surrey area at my parents' place before, and they always had a backyard, and so you know I did my gardening there. But ever since I moved into the downtown area, it's never done any community garden until I happened upon Cottonwood. And I, I know a lot of the time uh, uh, community gardens are kind of talked about in the way of, of just trying to uh, have more local food in the food system. Um, what does community gardening mean for you personally? It's, um, it's actually a, um, a peaceful escape for me from... Um, I live up on the drive, so it's, it's constant noise and a lot of people and a lot of traffic. So this is my getaway. So it's, uh, you know, from the first chance you get to break ground in early spring I usually find myself being here longer and longer every day up until you know harvest time and well into after the harvest time and it's attached to a park and it's uh, peaceful it's green it's uh, you know the other people that garden here I feel more like a community down here at the garden than I do up on the drive sometimes just you know everybody has a common goal down here to you know grow vegetables and fruits and it's a very it's a very nice place to come down to and it's a very um you know it's a very green space and i really appreciate that when uh, uh when you're living in an apartment on on the east side and and you don't have even a window box that you could grow anything out of so this means a lot to me so do you think you'd be able to afford as much uh, organic produce uh, and getting organic or, or even just healthy vegetables if you didn't have this plot um, absolutely not. Um, uh, organic vegetables at, at the stores that I have seen are very expensive. And uh, no, I, I would not be able to, you know, get the organic vegetables or, you know, buy it from a store like I would. if I, When I grew up myself, I knew exactly what went into it. So it, it, it wouldn't be a, a feasible thing for me to, to try and go organic when the prices at the stores are astronomical. Uh what would it mean for you um, in worst-case scenario when we lose the garden? How would that impact you? It would be a very sad thing because like, it, it's a lot of things to me. It's an oasis. It's a way to grow my own vegetables. and um, I would probably try to find another spot, but I haven't seen anything in the east side area that's as, as huge as cottonwood, as nice as cottonwood, and as safe as cottonwood. Um... It would be a very, very sad thing um, to lose this space. It, it's not only gardens for us, but it's also green space and park space for a lot of people in the area. Um, did you want to say anything else that I haven't asked? Um, I just, I 
I honestly hope that we don't lose this garden. I know there's a lot of talk that uh, it might be going through the garden or completely eradicating this garden. It would be really sad. There's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, plants that are I've never seen anywhere else or wildlife that live in the park and um, a lot of the elders in the area that live here that will stroll through every day. People, park walkers, dog walkers come through the garden and it's um, it would be a really sad thing to lose this green space because it means so much to a lot of people in the, in the community. Why, why do you think it, it's even being considered? Um, I don't know. It may be because it's city, we're on city property. I have no idea. Um, you know, everybody's... I understand that it had to go away from prior because, you know, it's a residential area. Um, but there's National, which is a few blocks over, that's, that doesn't have anything on there, and it wouldn't impact as much... Um, on National Street, but I don't even know why it's being considered there. I, I have no idea. Um, I, I really don't know. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss for words because this we're trying to strive for a green city, but I, taking a community garden and a huge, nice park away uh, from this area is, is not exactly the, the end goal of what we're trying to achieve here, so... I honestly hope they, they rethink all of this and try and reroute whatever it is traffic that they're trying to get into the down core somewhere else because um, this would be a very sad thing to lose. That was gardener Mariah Morell talking to me as we watered our plots at Cottonwood Garden, located in Strathcona, Vancouver, which is part of the larger downtown east side. Local groups representing low-income residents in the downtown east side are worried about the removal of the viaducts for reasons ranging from the immediate health impacts to the housing impacts. According to Downtown Eastside Neighborhood Council board member Ivan Drury, despite traffic being rerouted over one or both of the gardens, Hastings Street would absorb 30% of that new traffic flow. That would have a significant health impact on the densely populated and health-vulnerable community members immediately surrounding that street, which, as he understands it, the city planners hadn't looked into. The city land lying under the viaducts is slated for housing, 20% of which the city maintains will be reserved at affordable rates. These affordable rates target income levels ranging from $20,000 per year and $90,000 per year. An online article by the Carnegie Community Action Project estimated that 1,000 units of social housing could fit on those two city-owned blocks. Other than city and provincial land, real estate developers such as Concord Pacific own the bulk of the remaining land. In that context of gentrification, how can one understand the plan on the basis of its environmental sustainability? Noah Questel is a PhD candidate at the UBC Department of Geography. He is author of the article, The Political Ecologies of Gentrification, which appeared in a 2009 edition of the journal Urban Geography. So what do you mean by political ecologies of gentrification? is an emerging academic discipline uh, in geography, anthropology, and other, other disciplines that works uh, sort of across fields. And the idea is that one looks at ecosystems and resource flows in terms of political contestation. And so the key idea at the, at the urban level is that there's nothing unnatural about a city, but that cities may 
made up of flows of resources, of fluids, of water, of energy, and that landscapes in the city can be seen as natural landscapes. And so the question becomes for the political ecologist, not just how much resources are being used, but how are people politicizing the environment in terms of um, running into conflicts over how much people should have, how nice they are, how much they conform to their values, and then also the ways in which discourses of the environment become tools of governance and government in cities and the ways in which discourses of the environment can become themselves something that, that is an object of dispute. Which is to say, we, there are different environmentalisms. There's political economies of the environment. So we have right-wing environmentalism and left-wing environmentalism, and they often run into conflict. Your, your article also goes on to describe eco-gentrification. What's eco-gentrification? So... so Gentrification is particularly of concern for political ecologists because, let me start by talking about gentrification. Gentrification is, is a process that happens in cities. Uh, often as cities get larger, the central core will get more expensive. And what we see quite often is a process where run-down buildings or run-down areas emerge uh, around the center of cities which often get occupied by uh, students and immigrants or marginalized communities. And what is happening is that land is being held by developers waiting for prices to go up. In the meantime, the local residents invest a lot of time and effort and uh, grow their communities and then find themselves being displaced as the property markets shift and new developments come in. What we see in Vancouver and the reasons why I, I concentrate on a political ecology of gentrification is that languages of sustainability and greening the city are intertwined with gentrification processes as Vancouver builds itself as a livable city and as a green city, or in fact the greenest city, uh, what happens is, is that it becomes a point of uh, pride that well-off people can live in the center of the city, and in doing so often contribute to displacing my prime concern, I, I think, is that sustainability policy has to look to issues of social justice. And if it doesn't, it's going to make gentrification worse. And what I have said in a number of articles is that in Vancouver we have two problems. One, there's a problem of gentrification, and another is that the languages of sustainability have been stripped of social justice concern. And so the result is we're getting projects like Sam Sullivan's eco-density which promoted high-rise development in the center of the city without due concern for issues of social housing and community input. Your article opens with a description of a particular community garden in the downtown east side. Uh, what is the story behind that garden? Um, so what I noticed just riding my bike was that the Ani group of companies at Seymour uh, and Pacific had a lot vacant uh, awaiting development, and that on that lot, they were providing space for community gardens, um, but not just any kind of community garden. It would be a community garden very much controlled by its company. And also, they had a very large ad on, on the site for 
quote, move east, which would have been for uh, development at Maine and Union, which they subsequently built. Um, and so my feeling was that the Omni group of companies was in using the garden in this way, part of this process of merging languages of sustainability with gentrification processes. And that, so that became a kind of literary device I used through the article to explain how discourses of sustainability and gentrification can be intertwined. And uh, in a lot of ways, it was significant that this was in, in what's, what's Yale Town, because Yale Town is sort of the first step in this process in Vancouver of really getting people to live in the center of the city in walkable neighborhoods in the name of climate change, but also at the same time seeing really quite dramatic rise in real estate prices. Many students of sustainability or urban planning are familiar with planning principles such as smart growth and eco-density. How do you reconcile these principles with the obvious uh, lack of social justice in terms of what's happening right now? When I went and looked at what smart growth organizations were saying, they were saying that there should be social housing built as part of smart growth. And they were expressing concern in reports and on their web pages and in conversations with densification initiatives that excluded the poor. However, what smart growth is on paper is different than what geographers sometimes call actually existing sustainabilities, which would be the way these programs hit, hit the ground uh, when they're built out in cities. And the problem in Vancouver has been twofold. One, there's been a constant back-and-forth fight between left-wing and right-wing councils on how much social housing there should be in new build developments. And the second is that there's very little money available for social housing coming from the provincial or federal governments. So the result is that new build areas, brownfield sites like Concord Pacific, parts of Yale Town, uh, the Olympic Village, have featured less than optimal amounts of social housing at the same time that the new developments have made these expensive places to live. And the result has been to push out poor people from the central city. So, um, and, and now in incorporating this uh, new removal of the vi viaducts uh, slated to happen, um, where does the removal of the viaducts fit into this big picture you're sketching out? Well, clearly removing the viaducts, uh, and I'm basing this on, on design proposals that were, that were made public a few months ago, it would clearly create a nice park in that area, and it would clearly remove some of the, the shadowing and the ominous industrial tone from that area. It would make it nicer by most people's standards and it would provide much-needed park space for the downtown east side. So those are good aspects. However, the downtown east side has been suffering from an onslaught of pressures for development, which is putting a lot of people at risk of being displaced and creating a lot of conflict with local groups that fear gentrification. And so I would argue very strongly that plans for the viaduct removal have to think through issues of social justice. And if they don't, they're going to just create more antagonism and lead the, the path towards sustainability in the city, towards areas that don't go together with a lot of social justice concerns and what might be called just transition.
mitigation, which would be a notion that what we're doing in attacking climate change and in building the city is trying to create an inclusive social process. Left to um, the the kind of proposals that developers might put forward, um, how does one reconcile social justice concerns with green concerns, with making a plan for the removal of the viaducts actually uh, happen? Well, on, in the viaduct case, I believe that they're under some tight constraints because they don't want the viaduct removal to be too expensive. So they're hoping that they can free public land to then sell as for profit real estate to subsidize essentially the costs of, of the you know construction workers to remove the, the physical structures. So if this is taken in a very narrow way in terms of here's a particular project, how can we make it affordable, then that whole project is going to do very little to ameliorate gentrification trends in the neighborhood. And because it's going to make the place nicer, it's going to make it that much more a place which middle-class people are going to look to, to live in, and then developers will be building more buildings. Um, and so unless the city or the province or the federal government steps in and says, we need to address this issue, very little is going to happen. So in some ways it is bigger than the city or bigger than this, this project. But I think the underlying problem is, is that the political culture in Vancouver and the country as a whole is one which is negligent concerning the fact that these gentrification processes are happening. So we need to shift the politics, and that's going to take, I think, something larger than, than just mobilization around the viaducts, but a, a larger movement to say we need justice in the city and we need sustainability policies to be just sustainability policies. I would stress that the viaducts if that proposal goes through, it has to be done in a way which isn't going to alienate um, different social groups. And in some ways, planners know that, but I've been seeing that there's been issues around community gardens potentially under threat. And I think there's a risk that because the viaducts is such a high-profile case uh, in which careers might be attached to, to making it go through, that there'd be a a tendency or a, a risk that that you know marginal groups might be might be pushed aside. And I think that would be really the wrong example. That we've got to see a project like the viaducts, not simply in terms of making the place prettier, but in terms of embodying a wide variety of social values. And so it's a project that's seen as progressive and unites people rather than divides them. That was Noah Questel, UBC PhD candidate in geography, author of the article Political Ecologies of Gentrification. This past hour, we have taken a closer look at green gentrification in the downtown east side surrounding the planned removal of the viaduct system leading into downtown from East Vancouver. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. She's 
your band playing on and on and on. Gosh, so loud. Man, I wish we had a safe place to play music. Yeah, and shows too. The Safe Amplification Site Society is a non-profit group dedicated to establishing a legal, affordable, all-ages venue for music and arts in Vancouver. For more information or to get involved, check out www.safeamp.org. And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. And I'm Andy Longhurst, and over the last hour, you've been hearing a special documentary feature um, produced by Peter Driftmere, and it has been looking at the politics of sustainability and gentrification in uh, the Strathcona, Chinatown, and, and broader downtown east side neighborhoods. And uh, I hope hopefully you've enjoyed that and um, sort of uh, looked at some of the the under underlying uh, threats and 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 politics around uh, the viaduct removal in that neighborhood and certainly one that we're likely to see um, coming to uh, City Council Vancouver City Council um, certainly probably no later than June um, but around that time um, as we've heard reported and um, again as as you would have heard in the documentary um, the plan is to um, to remove those viaducts and to open up um, space uh, green space and and the possibility of um, housing and, and other forms of amenities in those uh, communities and again going back that was uh, the only remnants really of the inner city highway system that wasn't um, ever um, completed in the city of Vancouver and that was fought as you heard from Nick Blomley professor of geography at Simon Fraser University uh, fought by Spada and um, Strathcona residents tenants property owners and and uh, Chinatown um, residents and businesses as well and so that those viaducts were really the only things that um, came out of uh, this highway vision. Again, this is uh, high modernism um, in the late 1960s and, and 1970s to really envision the automobile city. And so those viaducts um, were built, Dunsmuir and Georgia. And again, what, it, what Vision Vancouver um, and City Council are looking at is to bring those down. So certainly interesting. Um, and I think Peter Driftmuir did a, a, quite an excellent job explaining um, that sometimes these policies um, have have uh, problems or they, they risk um, the loss of already existing sustainability or environmental and social justice. So if we have people that have access to a form of food security in the downtown east side with Cottonwood and Strathcona Gardens, uh, what, is, what is potentially being lost um, with uh, this plan to bring the viaducts down? And as Noah Questel mentioned in the last part, Really, what who benefits, and and that's sort of the question around uh, sustainability: is what are those politics, and and how do we see this within larger urban change and transformation? And so, this is something here in the city um, that I certainly like to think about, and and um, want to continue this discussion um, about urban change and how you know environmentalism and sustainability. Um, and all of these different things play into broader transition, transitions and transformations uh, within our urban space. And again, how is it contested and who benefits um, and who, who loses out in, in some cases? So again, um, much to think about. 
If you enjoyed what you heard or uh, you want to check out the full podcast or missed a portion of it, check out thecityfm.org, uh, a full archive of podcasts and web-exclusive content there. Again, www.thecityfm.org uh, for lots of content, um, and uh, you'll be directed to uh, where you can uh, subscribe to the podcast um, from iTunes as well. Check out the Facebook page, The City critical urban discussions and also follow the city on twitter uh, with the handle the city underscore fm i'm andy longhurst and we'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions and again i want to thank you so much for tuning in um, we'll have uh, lots of great coverage in coming weeks, uh, particularly looking at uh, the DOXA Documentary Film Festival and some of the urban-focused uh, films within uh, that festival. So stay with us. We've got Flex Your Head coming up uh, next on CITR at 6 p.m. live. And if you're listening syndicated to C- on CJSF, you've got Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman coming up next. Again, thanks as always for tuning in. <laughs>